if you look at Spanish-speaking Latin America, we're around 6% of the population of the world and a little bit more than that in internet-connected users. Yet, last year, we received less than 1% of the venture capital investments in the world. Those two numbers are ultimately going to be closer. So there's a lot of opportunity for people like us who are looking at this and saying like, hey, the fundamentals are here. There is risk as in everywhere, and we'll mitigate that risk through, through doing the right decisions. Welcome to the Going Global podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employer record platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with 97% customer satisfaction ratings. Globalization Partners, succeed faster. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders of high-growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we're interviewing Santiago Zavala. Santiago is founder and partner at 500 Startups Latin America, an early-stage venture fund and seed accelerator. To date, Santiago has made over 130 investments as part of the 500 Startups family and is an expert in product development. Hello, Santiago, and welcome. Hey, Diego. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. So I'm going to start with the basics, and I'm pretty sure that this is the question that everyone asks you when you're giving an interview, but we have to do it to give more context to our listeners. Please give us a picture of the evolution of the startup ecosystem in Mexico and in Latin America. But just to change the question a bit and make it more fresh and different, I would ask you, if I had been an entrepreneur 50 years ago, what challenges would I have faced at that time that are different compared to today? Well, that's exactly the position that I had the first-hand experience to live, right? 20 years ago, I started to create different websites and later on applications of a programmer in the region, you know, we faced a lot of different challenges. One of them was that there were very few other people doing these kind of companies using these kind of technologies. But I think one of the biggest challenges was that there were no access to capital. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to even imagine how you would set up a round, like an investment round for an early stage startup in the region at that moment. And that's what exactly led us to be doing what we're doing right now. Roughly 11 years ago, I got together with a couple of other entrepreneurs, both from Mexico and some from the US. And we were joking around, you know, how hard it was to try to find the right partners and the capital to jumpstart these kind of businesses. And we spent like a year trying to do the connection between people who had this problem and people who might be interested in investing. And we realized that there were many like very clear structural reasons why it was not happening. So we just decided to jump and do it. So we started a fund called Mexican VC in 2011. We raised some capital, invested in seven companies. And then in 2013, we joined 500 startups to do that in scale. How did you do that? I mean, you're describing that there was little faith or no previous experience in creating a venture fund for startups in Mexico. So how were you able to convince people to give you money and start it? I feel like it was really just identifying which were the gaps and then trying to fill them. We very quickly started to engage with people who had experience in the venture and the startup scene in the US, people who wanted to have that experience in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And when we were introducing them to people who are doing these projects, entrepreneurs, very quickly there was energy. Like you could see people where they had the intention to do this, 
But then we started to find why people ultimately didn't, you know, pull the trigger, write the check, spend the time doing this. And in those conversations, we started to realize that there was a lack of trust mm. in the region. And this was coming from people maybe from outside. And it's not because they didn't trust the region because they thought that something was structurally wrong. They just didn't know it, right? They didn't know how businesses are created. And we also had very few examples of these kind of businesses. And then the other thing that happened was that people who were very deep into technical and startup ecosystems, they might have like an expectation that this product would be a little bit down the road from what we had. They would usually see products that were a little bit more developed. So mm. we decided to just go in and try to fill those gaps. And that's why we decided to start the fund, because we felt that we could get the people to trust us and then we could trust the companies. And that's why we ended up deciding to do the fund. Basically, um, the chicken and egg dilemma, right? Exactly. So we just try to brute force approach this, like, you know, trying to, to find people who already trusted in us. So we remove that step. And then the other thing that we learned, and it's been, you know, almost a decade in the ma making, is that the other very big missing piece was these success stories that okay. share what's working, that, you know, form talent and continue to develop the ecosystem. And it was really just, as you mentioned, it's the chicken and egg problem. So we just decided to start the first batch and hope that that jumpstart many other things. And I, I mean, we're happy to report now a decade later that it worked. Now there's hundreds of startups and hundreds of rounds that get filled every year in the region. Uh, there's some very successful companies. Looking back now, we have, sadly, not part of our portfolio, but there's one unicorn in Mexico. And we have a handful of companies in our portfolio that we expect that you know, they'll be in that similar kind of range soon. Yeah, every week we hear about the huge investment rounds from uh, Mexican startups. We just heard about Bitso receiving a massive uh, funding round and also Albo, this fintech startup, right? Right. So which industries have been transformed the most of, or, or have flourished because of the Latin American startup scene? So, I mean, in our portfolio, we see some of, the, of our first, you know, really big companies. We have a handful that have now raised over $100 million each that are growing, that are becoming, you know, very important in their industries. And my feeling is that if we look back into the first portfolios, most of those companies, you would probably put them in the fintech space. Hmm. But for me, I have a different approach on how I look at this. And I feel like these companies, the common piece of it, or what makes them all very similar, is that they were part of the infrastructure that you required to build other businesses online, so you can see payments. One of those that is not in the fintech space is in the logistics space, which is a last mile delivery company that has been really important for the development of the e-commerce in the region. Some other ones are in the payment space. So for me, I feel like the first big companies that we were involved with had to do with you know building that infrastructure so that other companies can be created using all the beautiful pieces that you can get from you know doing internet and mobile startups. Now we're seeing a second wave, and I, I feel like that second wave still is very fueled by fintech, where you can see companies as the ones that you mentioned that have that are related to, in the case of Bitso, in the cryptocurrency space, I feel like it's the connection of financial markets. And I feel like, you know, people from all over the world are looking at crypto as a way to, you know, make that better. And then you start to see some consumer fintech-related products like Albo that you mentioned, which is, you know, this neobank wave that we're seeing. When we see some of the other very big companies in the region, you see a lot of, around, of course, uh, mobility. So you see all the drive-hailing applications, both internationally and local, have flourished. 
You see on demand, I think Rappi has become really key there competing with Uber Eats. You see the grocery delivery space with Corner Shop and Justo and, and some other players really growing a lot. But then you also see some other spaces that are super interesting. I mean, for example, the educational space for us is super interesting. For example, one company that we have the joy of working with in the portfolio is Platzi, which is a huge online community of people learning, you know, all these different skills that you need to be able to create the same uh, products and technologies and marketing and everything on the internet. And, you know, when you think about it, they have over a million students registering the platform. And, you know, like that for me, just like a mind blowing number when you think about the impact that it will generate for this whole ecosystem in the future. So it seems to me that most of the Latin American startups that you've mentioned or part of the things that you've mentioned is that obviously in order to be a successful startup, you have to, you know, identify a potential opportunity in the market, you know, something that is missing and fill that gap, fill that void with your product or service. But then what happens when you've already done it in your own territory and it's time to expand internationally? So please share with us what are the most common first steps that the 500 startups take when they are starting to plan their international expansion and executing it. What's usually the first step you advise them to take after they have already found product market fit in their own territory? That's a really interesting question because even though we've been doing this for now over a decade and we've seen a lot of different companies in so many different industries, we don't have an answer for that. And the reason it's kind of like mixed in different reasons, right? So the first one is that the business model is going to be very different. So for example, a fintech company as the ones that we were just mentioning, they're usually very heavy on the regulatory side. Mm. And regulations are going to be dramatically different. Mm. So we've seen that fintech usually tends to expand a little bit slower. And you do have to make your market research on the side of your regulatory research. Then on the other side, on the extremely fast side, and Platzi, the one that I mentioned, is a really good example. When you have you know, online content that is useful in a language, you should be trying to target everyone who speaks that language. So it's no surprise that very quickly Platzi, originally with Spanish-related content, very quickly went to all the Spanish-speaking Latin American markets. And of course, they had to deal with how do I spend my budget? Where should I be you know, spending more time? Where my market might be more attractive so that I can build a stronger team there? Um, and there's also a lot of logistical challenges around having income being generated in all these different entities or places. Credit card processing might not be super simple in some of these countries if there's not a lot of infrastructure. So you have to go and spend some time thinking, well, how much time I want to spend optimizing, I don't know, for example, payments for Panama versus doing it for Costa Rica or doing it for Ecuador, like, you know, like all these different places. And of course, we do try to prioritize the bigger markets and those usually have more infrastructure. So you have to develop a little bit less of that infrastructure. And then we have a wide range of businesses in the middle, right? Depending on how heavy it's on operations, how heavy or how clear is the competition. Just trying to summarize everything that I'm saying is still more of an art than a science, right? Like you have to balance the very few resources that these companies usually have. You have to balance the upside of doing these expansions and really measure the risk that you're taking by your strategy. But I guess what I, one thing that I would definitely love to add is that we're always having like these 
balancing act where, of course, we're trying to maximize the markets that we can go for, but not taking risks that are, you know, bigger than the ones that we want. But you surely have identified, you know, the most common challenges that Latin American startups face when they are planning and executing their international expansion plans, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess when we're looking at some of these challenges and it's independent of when we want to expand, right? Like once we decide, like we're going there, we've seen that one of the biggest risk factors is, is, is that first couple of hires, right? If you mm. have the right people, the possibilities that your expansion will work correctly are definitely way better than if you have the incorrect people. And sometimes doing that recruiting from a distance is really hard when you don't know the market. It's really hard to really run a background check on someone and try to get references if you have no network there. I feel like that's one of the things where being part of our portfolio can be really useful because we already have all these different startups that ha were either born in different regions or they've expanded to different regions. So we can tap into those networks to at least, you know, ask some questions like, hey, we're thinking about hiring someone in this role. And sometimes we can do that, you know, reference checks or at least get an idea of what these first couple of hires should look like and avoid some of the most common mistakes. I would feel like another, you know, big challenge is just how split your time between consolidating your original market and how much you go and spend time in these new markets. Uh, we see that, you know, the founders and the leadership team in our teams, they are very important in setting the right culture. So if they never go to these new markets, then they, they, you might have a very different culture in each one of these different places. But then at the same time, if you go and just spend all your time in these new markets, you might be leaving behind the original organization without really you know, supporting it as you should. We've had mixed results with companies expanding through acquisition. So we've had a couple of companies that when they want to open a market and there's already someone playing you know, that role there, we actually have acquired those companies. When it works, it's definitely an amazing experience. It results as a very quick way to already have a presence in a market. But then just as I was mentioning on the culture side, if there are very different teams, very different cultures, and your original operations are still not huge, you will end up with two organizations and blending them to be one is really hard. Now, I want to go deeper into this thing that you just explained about the relevance and importance of networks. So, I mean, when we talk about business accelerators and incubators, sometimes people may think, oh, it's only the advice they give or it's only the money or the seed funding they could provide. But there is a big relevance in the connections they may already have through the region that may help companies grow faster or create a better strategy, especially when expanding globally, right? That's what you said. Yeah, I mean, when we see ourselves and we try to describe the value add that we're trying to bring to the portfolio companies, we see three specific things. The very first one is the one that you just mentioned. So we have over 2,000 founders in our global network. We have over 300 in Latin America, in Spanish-speaking Latin America. We have our own investors who also, you know, are very important people in the region that we can tap into when we're looking at each one of these different industries and challenges that we might be facing. So suddenly, like that network becomes really important and very relevant. The second piece of it is the, the work that we directly do with the company. So you, you were mentioning the advice, but it's not only advising. We actually dive deeper and we try to get our hands dirty and we spend time going through a process that we've created in this decade of trying to de-risk a startup. Hmm. So we go and ask a lot of questions around like, hey, how are you thinking about this? Or, what have you done about this other thing? 
And we try to find the blind spots and then try to you know, make sure that there is no imminent risk that we might not be looking at these companies. And we work together with companies on that front. And then there is a third piece, which is the mentorship programs that we have, where we do have another wide network of people who are experts on different topics. So when we identify that we need an expert, we can bring them in and they can support at least with a little bit of advice on how an expert would approach this challenge. And then we can hear a couple of those different advices and decide how to proceed. I don't want to get too political, but I have a very personal <laughs> question and probably a bias about Latin America, because you constantly hear that there are many regions in the world out there, like, for example, Southeast Asia, that are incredibly attractive for companies to expand to. And of course, when you see Latin America, you see a huge market in terms of how many people live here. But also you have these particular challenges, you know, political risks that might make investments less attractive or regulatory issues or political instability in some particular countries. So how do you think that affects Latin American startups when trying to expand to the same region? I mean, do you think it is less of a problem considering that any startup has a huge challenge anyway ahead because they're trying you know, to create a good product that truly works for one specific region and all these collateral issues might not be that important? Yeah, I would definitely put them on the not so important pile. And let me tell you a little bit why. There is this narrative that you just mentioned where there might be some investors or there might be some people who look at Latin America and they say like, hey, there is this risk, there is these challenges. So I'm going to pass, right? Mm -hmm. And for sure, like everyone has a right to decide how they approach and how they make their own decisions. But we don't need everyone to decide to come and spend time here, right? Like we just need some people to do it. When you look at how people are making these decisions and how these markets are behaving, you just go and look at the data. You see how many users are using WhatsApp every day. And that's the infrastructure of people that you can reach out through their cell phones. That's people who are all every day interacting with a digital technology. No one can say it's like, oh, there is no underlying market, right? And then you go and you open some of the financials of some of the public companies that are operating here. And you just take, I mean, like a couple of different industries, right? If you go and you look at the percentage of revenue that Latin America represents for Uber, mm -hmm. and it's, it's over 10%, right? And you see the top three cities in numbers of rides, two are in Brazil, one is in Mexico. You go and you open now that Airbnb is public, I will be able to actually go and, and confirm my numbers, but I'm sure that the revenue coming from Latin America is going to be significant. If you go and you look at number of streams in Spotify, or you see subscribers in Netflix, Disney Plus just opened in Mexico. So, I mean, when you look at the reality is that you see a huge market that is generating revenue for all the companies that I just mentioned. And these are companies that everyone trusts and that they know. In that sense, I mean, like if you decide to ignore this market, I think it's going to be your loss, nothing else. And then on the other side, you know, when we think about how you make money in investing, it's usually when you are right and other people are wrong. So the fact hmm. that a lot of people could be ground here, it's actually a really interesting investment strategy, right? Let me just set up the right numbers here. So if you look at Spanish-speaking Latin America, we're around 6% of the population of the world and a little bit more than that in internet-connected users. Yet, last year, we received less than 1% of the venture capital investments in the world, right? Those two numbers are ultimately going to be closer. So there's a lot of opportunity for people like us who are looking at this and saying like, hey, the fundamentals are here. There is risk as in everywhere and we'll mitigate that risk through doing the right decision. So for example, when we look at a lot of what we do on how we structure the investments, 
a lot of our holding companies are in the US. So if you say like, hey, I don't want to deal with the regulatory or like the risk that the rule of law will be like whatever in this specific country, like, hey, we're investing into, you know, Delaware C-Corps and any legal issue will resolve it like that. And there's all these different things like that, that I feel like once people take a closer look, they'll come to realize that it's a no-brainer to be spending a little bit more of time and energy looking at the region. And a lot of people are doing it. You, you see the number of deals that have been announced. You just mentioned a couple announced these last couple of weeks. And we have newer funds, like the top-branded funds in the world. They're all looking at Latin America. So my feeling is that this perception will change in the next five or 10 years. But not only that, let me just give you the last bit of why all of this is super exciting for me. Some regions that when they have a new crisis, when they didn't have a crisis before, they freak out and they don't know how to manage it. Latin America has had crises like over and over and over for the last many years. So all of our entrepreneurs know how to deal with uncertainty. And they are crazy enough to start businesses, taking all the risks that you mentioned on top of the ones that anyone from the outside could be looking at. And because of that, you know, you end up working with really committed people, really hardworking people who really see entrepreneurship as a way to make the world better and to make their communities better. And I feel like that's something that is very unique and exciting of, you know, doing our job. That was a fantastic answer. Really appreciate it, Santiago. Now, <laughs> I guess there are a lot of your companies in the 500 startup Latin America portfolio. There are a lot of companies that have already conquered the U.S. markets or that have already started doing business there. What traits or characteristics do you think they share that have made possible their success in the U.S. market? Yeah, I mean, we have different companies, different patterns here. So we have some international companies, just thinking, for example, in the portfolio, thinking about global companies, there's a company from Australia called Canva. Mm -hmm. You might have used it to edit some images. I mean, they've really been able to conquer, I wouldn't say the US, but the world. And I feel like the pattern there is just having something that is way better than anything in the market. And for that, I feel like as each ecosystem develops and has like more companies and more people training, on the job, really, on how to build these companies, how to build product, how to do online marketing, how to have these insights of what the market is craving for, the more probabilities that you'll be able to compete on that global landscape of digital products. And I feel like there is a great opportunity there for every region in the world. And Latin America will certainly start to play a bigger role in that. Then when we look at companies that have expanded to a specific country and just thinking, as we just mentioned, this piece, a good example for that from our portfolio here in Latin America would be a company called Aprende, which means learn. They are an online educational platform for people who want to learn a skill to have a better job. And they, this goes from like cooking to recommending wine to how to start a small company in different industries, to you know, how to operate different businesses that you can probably you know, make a better income from doing that. They started in Latin America with Spanish content, and they very quickly started to get feedback from people in the US, from the Hispanic community, saying like, hey, I want this, but it's not specifically adapted to my reality. So they started to adapt that. And now that's definitely their biggest market at the moment. And it's super exciting. And they, you have all these different stories about, you know, the majority of the people who go through one of their educational courses having a significant increment in their income. This really comes from having a couple of insights onto that specific market and working with that insight to generate an amazing product for that specific piece of the market. And I feel like that's a pattern that we constantly see. People who have success in one region and are able to identify how that success translates in some other place 
but it's not only you know opening an office and expanding or like trying to like do a small marketing effort it's really integrating into this new market and finding what's similar and what resonated on that first uplift that you got but then really building a product that integrates deeply i hadn't thought about that but now that you mention it the u.s market's so big but if you have a product that is particularly successful with Latin American audiences, there's a chance that you will be successful in the U.S. by trying to conquer the Latino audience living in the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean, definitely works better for some pieces than others. Like, I feel like this educational example, it's something that now we can talk about just having seen it happen. We can't imagine that this would happen, but this is the first one time that we really see it working that way. There might be other situations, like going back to the fintech example where the landscape of services and products might be so radically different, mm -hmm. then you might not have a good opportunity, right? So, I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, we have in the portfolio Clip, which is uh, this payment platform that people might remember a little bit like Square for Mexico. So, I mean, if you try to go and expand to a specific niche of the population in the U.S., you will still face a very big uh, competition with a, with a player that might be positioned even uh, like very strongly already. Again, I feel like on all these international expansions, I feel like there's always good inspiration in things that have worked, but each experience is a little bit different. Let's talk a bit about talent, because I guess that the creation of the startup scene in Latin America and this ecosystem has caused two immediate effects, right? One is, of course, more startups. But maybe the other one is more talented professionals with very specific tech skills that can also work with startups, but also with big companies trying to expand in Mexico. So would you agree on that? A Mexican and Latin American startup scene has had a, this effect of creating more talented professionals with very specific tech skills? Yeah, I think so. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples of interesting things that add into this, I guess with this, I want to start painting kind of like a pattern that we're starting to see. So last year, we got reached out by Stripe, a very big global payments company, but based in San Francisco, because they wanted to open a development center here in Mexico. And they did. And it's an amazing thing. You know, it generates a lot of talent. I think it's great for the economy and for just inspiring other people of what can be done in Mexico. And very quickly, we start to get other people. And we've heard of like five or 10 big U.S. startups that are opening development offices in, in Mexico. And the funny thing is that some of them don't even have operations in Mexico. And they could, but they're spending first on the talent side than on the market side. And that's super interesting. We recently started to work with and investing in a company called Get On Board. And they are a very big community of tech people who are in that specific moment looking for a new job opportunity. And they've had over 150,000 people in the region who are registering this platform and interacting with international employers who are looking for this talent. So when you start to look, you know, it's not like a small amount of people who have learned how to code in the last couple of years. It's really, you know, every country has had efforts for the last 20 years to revamp their educational processes, to adapt to what we felt was the future, and now it's the present. I, I definitely feel like we have some advantages to outsourcing or freelancing or, or hiring people in very different time zones, right? Like all America has this situation that it's pretty, you know, time zone friendly for a remote uh, work. And then you suddenly have this year with the whole COVID situation, it really expanded that, accelerated that change. And we're seeing more and more companies in our global portfolio 
who are, you know, tapping into us and saying like, hey, let me know if you can support us on finding this talent, if you can support us on these first steps of trying to recruit people in the region. And I think like that's also going to be super interesting. I feel it's kind of like sweet and sour because the more people that are looking for the talent in the region, the harder it's going to be for entrepreneurs to recruit this talent (laughs) for early stage startups. But on the other side, each person that is hiring someone here, you know, will continue to develop that talent and make it even more attractive to learn all these different skills. So I'm excited. It really raises the bar of how attractive your opportunity has to be to be able to recruit the best talent. But that's great. I mean, like, that's, that's what we want. <laughs> Can you give us examples of how startups in your portfolio have pivoted or changed their business plans due to the pandemic? I mean, do you see this resilience or this capacity of changing their strategy because of such a global crisis as the COVID-19? Yeah, of course. I mean, the very first thing that comes to mind, so of course, it was not easy in March and the first couple of months of this to go and, and say this. We actually had to do it first. And now we are, you know, locally able to look back and be excited about how we're ending this year and starting 2021. But what I would say is that it was very obvious now that if there is a percentage of the population that could look at a massive problem and a moment of change as an opportunity, it obviously had to be the entrepreneurs, right? And because of that, everything really ended up, I would say, better than expected. So we had a percentage of our portfolio that was positively impacted, right? Like everything that had to do with this infrastructure to do, you know, digital businesses. You can imagine e-commerce, on-demand, grocery delivery, like all of these businesses and the infrastructure behind them had a massive growth during all this time. Customers change behaviors, right? Like the demographic that we were looking at using our services became bigger. Their recurrence just went crazy. And if you have a, a good service and you were able to really, you know, became part of the customer's experience now, we saw massive growth. Then there was a good chunk of the portfolio that was not negatively affected, but did have to, you know, reconfigure, change their own working with their employees, working with like their operations to make sure that everything worked. And that was a lot of work and a lot of people were able to find efficiencies in that. So, you know, everyone was very careful with cash flows and making decisions and, you know, very careful with the cash flow and, and making sure that everything worked. And because of that, we've seen less failure this year than in previous years in our portfolio, which is kind of like counterintuitive. And then, of course, we have some companies that were negatively impacted, and those are mostly related to industries that became non-operational. So travel, entertainment, but most of these companies, luckily enough, they were able to adapt with their customers. Some of them through either changing their offering, others really just trying to understand how the recovery of their industry is going to look like and plan for that and and start to look at a longer term survival plans. But yeah, it's been a super interesting year because even those companies that are in a horrible situation in their industries, if we're able to be there ready for the moment where these industries go up, they'll have less competition. And that's still hopefully months and not years to really see this, but there, we might be able to, in some of these industries, pass from just being a, like a super small company at the beginning of this pandemic to potentially, if we use this ride, you know, and ride the wave on the front, we might be able to come out being an important player in that industry. 
Um, and if we're able to do that, even in just some of the cases, believe me, on a, on a portfolio construction side, it will be very positive for us and for the ecosystem. You've told us how startups changed due to the pandemic, but I guess the question is, how will the role of startup incubators and accelerators change, not only because of the pandemic, but because of the remote first world that we will probably be living in in the upcoming months and years? Especially, I, I'm thinking about the community part of what a business incubator and accelerator used to be, you know, like a lot of people gathered in the same office, sharing their day-to-day -day experiences and problems and challenges and learning from each other. Are we going to lose that or how are incubators and accelerators adapting to this new reality? Right. So, I mean, like we spent 10 years doing creation and if we were proud of one thing was how we had that community aspect that you just mentioned really working, right? Yeah. So this year has been challenging for us and trying to, of course, on our own, trying to do that. So we've moved to do remote programs. And the first thing that is super exciting is that we can try to replicate that through these kind of interactions like we're having right now. And we did during this year. So that's exciting. Now, even more exciting is that that like taught us that it's possible and it has some advantages, right? So we can spend more time with everyone if we are more efficient and we're doing that. Now, we hope that in the future, we'll be able to do a blended model where we can do some weeks where we all get together, we know we build that relationship, but then we have a lot more on the virtual international connection that is happening all the time without people having to be in our office. So I believe we might be able to come out of this with the best of both worlds. So I have one last question, and I guess it's one of the things I appreciate the most about you and what 500 startups and other people have done in the last 10 to 15 years creating this uh, startup ecosystem in the region is not only, of course, what you just described in the last minutes, you know, like the funding and the advice and the connections and the network and the experiences, but the culture, you know, like really changing our mindset, especially among young people about, you know, these heroes that we talk about and the mass media tell us on a daily basis about how great the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Steve Jobs of the world are, and suddenly talk about them as if they were aliens and people very far away from us and suddenly have examples of people that are very close to do that. And it's thanks to this ecosystem you've helped create. So my question is, do you think we have arrived to that stage where you could say there is definitely now a different mindset among young people in Mexico, in Latin America, on what entrepreneurship is, on the possibility of creating world-changing startups? Do you think you've achieved that? Yeah, I guess the answer is, is also, you know, a little bit bipolar <laughs> in the way that definitely yes, but definitely not. Uh, <laughs> when you ask me this question and I go back to my numbers, like what I can see happening around me, I definitely see that five or eight years ago, it was really hard to recruit people to join an early stage startup. And now it's every day, it's easier. And it's not only young people, like you start to see like people with many years, sometimes a couple decades of experience in a corporation being recruited by some of these startups, right? And even taking lower pay rates as long as they are getting some equity on the company. And that's super exciting. When I see the companies that are coming to us, it used to be that we were the, always the first investors. And it's now happening that we're rarely the first investors. They usually have friends or family or someone in their ecosystem already invested into them. And that's you know, a very clear sign that people change their minds, that they want to support this happening. And they want to see potentially the upside of doing that. 
So there's definitely been already a change. But then when you ask me, like, have you achieved what you were like looking for? I still, we're still far from that. One of the things that you just mentioned is how far or how close these people who might be building these companies look like for the general population. And I still feel, you know, that sadly entrepreneurship still only accessible for people who have the right connections, the right education. And just given how the world has been configured in the past, that is a very clear, a small percentage of the population that also has, um, in a way, very different aspects and, 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 and a different reality from most of the population in Latin America. So I look forward, and I think this is something that we all have to work with, is how do we make entrepreneurship accessible for everyone? How do we bring these tools and these opportunities to more and more people? And you will start to feel that when there's real representation of the founder community to what the usual demographic of Latin America looks like. And I, I feel we're still far from that. Well, uh, Santiago, it has been a great conversation. I really, really appreciate you took the time to talk with us and thank you for all the answers. No, no, no. Thank you. This was super fun and it's always great to talk to you, Diego. Thank you, Santiago. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember that you can find all episodes on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts and in our website. So if you are planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started. This is Going Global. Presented by Globalization Partners.